The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Hello and welcome to Inside Politics, the politics podcast from the Irish Times. This is Pat Leahy and I'm sitting in this week for Hugh Linehan, currently disporting himself around the beaches of Connemara in a mankini. Later on today's podcast, we'll be talking to Barry Andrews from the the MEP-in-waiting and head of the Institute of European Affairs on EU appointments. And we'll also speak to Derek Scali, our Berlin correspondent, about the new proposed head of the European Commission. But first, I want to talk about the end of the Dáil term and the issues facing the government. And I'm joined by Irish Times political reporter Jennifer Bray. Good morning. And by Jared Howland, columnist from the Irish Examiner. Good morning, Pat. Folks, I'll turn to you first, um, Jennifer, if I may. You've been writing a lot about the uh, Mercosur deal and the political fallout from that, which it seems to me is bubbling away at the government without actually erupting into a full-scale political crisis for them yet. What's your view of where things stand on that? Yeah, I think that's fair enough because this deal has been in the works for the guts of two decades and, you know, uh, multiple governments have had to grapple with this. And the other aspect is that it won't actually come to pass until at least two years. So this is something that is very much in the past, the present and definitely in the future. So it's one of those things where it's a controversy that's bubbling away, but it's not imminent. So there's no immediate pressure to to resolve it. But for sure, it has led to a, a lot of opposition. And I know that speaking to Fine Gael TDs, uh, especially Fine Gael rural TDs, they're really, really feeling the heat on this. Uh, they have m- a lot of constituents getting in touch, a lot of farmers who are, are, are very angry about this. Um, and who've been campaigning on this for for many many years uh, with the Irish with the IFA. So um, obviously a big part of the issue is the importation of massive amounts of or you know it can be debated how massive the amount is, but but a large amount of beef um, under under the deal. But the other aspect is that farmers are also facing into a potential no deal Brexit, and there is a lot of uncertainty around what's going to happen in October. Um, and this deal is another aspect of the great unknown. Um, and the, the industry without those two things has already been under massive pressure. Um, we've heard a lot of Finnegal TDs talking about how it's been, it's it's basically at breaking point. So when you put those three things together, the current economy, uh, the current prices, uh, no deal Brexit or any kind of Brexit really, uh, in fact, and this deal. And it's quite a bleak picture for rural Ireland, to be honest. And, and uh, Jerry, what are the political implications of that. I know just watching the Dáil yesterday, most of the opposition parties made it the basis of their questions to Richard Bruton, who was standing in for uh, Tisha Cleo Varadkar, who's in Brussels. Uh, of course, they clearly espy a political opportunity. Uh, is this something that could become electorally significant? Well, it is electorally significant and the politics of this issue and the economics of it are completely divergent because uh, we export 
just about as much as we import from the four big Latin American countries in this deal. But on services, we export one billion more than we export. And of the goods we export, it's overwhelmingly uh, pharmaceuticals and chemicals. And the um, tariff on those exports for us will go from 14% to zero under that deal. And we get a lot more besides and that doesn't even address the issue of our €1 billion Euro advantage in terms of services. All very so, well for well, metropolitan I, technocrats like yourself, well, this, but the services exporters don't vote as a group in the well, way this that is, the beef farmers this, this do. is the divergence between the economics and the politics uh, because uh, the, the other interests and the economic interest of Ireland is overwhelmingly in favour of this deal, don't have the cohesion uh, that the farmers do. And of the farmers, uh, about 100,000 farm families get some element of their income from beef. Uh, it may be quite small in many cases. So the reach of beef in farming politics is very wide. That's overlain by the fact that there are three farm organisations, the Beef Plan Movement, the ICSA, and the IFA in fairly feral competition with one another for these angry farmers. Is a certain amount of this very vocal campaign driven by competition between the farming oh, abs- organisations? Absolutely. And that intra-farm organisation competition is fuelled again because this is the election season in the IFA, the largest in a context where a general election is in the offing. And the reason Micheál Martin jumped into the ring to try and have a boxing match with Phil Hogan or Michael Creed or anyone else he finds is because, as Jennifer said, he knows that in the key constituencies where Fine Gael lost seats in the last election, that they pretty much have to regain in some in order to be ahead in the next all. A couple of hundred beef farmers will make the difference between a Fine Gael and a Fianna Fáil seat. So this is very smart pol- politics. It's very focused on a handful of constituencies. It'll possibly work for Micheál Martin, but forget about the big economics of the country as a whole, the 700,000 jobs that depend on exports to third countries outside the EU who will benefit. Because as you correctly said, uh, Pat, they don't, they're not uh, as cohesive, uh, they're not as angry, and it seems the greater interest will be kicked aside in order to focus on this narrow parochial interest. Jennifer, there was uh, a time when governments were terrified, principally of the IFA, but certainly of the farming lobby as a whole. And the farming lobby learned how to use that political power and influence. How spooked are Fine Gael TDs by this in your view? I think they are spooked by it but I do agree that the hold that farmers and that industry and agriculture used to have on politics was much stronger than it is now and I think the IFA are under quite a, quite an amount of pressure to get a result on this um, and to be seen to be getting a result on it but like that doesn't take away from the fact that it is going to present a major headache for Fine Gael, um, you know, and it has been pointed out, obviously, the Fine Gael are under pressure in rural areas um, and we've seen them try to get to, to grips with that, with the National Broadband Plan um, and try to win around that rural vote. Now, obviously, the National Broadband Plan now is in trouble again um, with talk of it being able to come in on millions under uh, if it was brought in by air. So, you know, they're getting it on all different sides and I think that 
I do agree that obviously there's a very clear reason why Micheál Martin is standing up in leaders' questions and, and on the attack. They'll make hay like they like they always do. But it's a really, it's a good one for them to be able to go in on and say, once again, you're letting down rural Ireland. You know, what are you going to do about this? Why weren't you, why weren't you lobbying on this? And the fact is they were, you know, Phil Hogan um, was receiving letters from Michael Creed in June. Um, Heather Humphreys was writing to the EU Trade Commissioner uh, at the end of May both of them pleading them to use their their offices to make sure that the deal wasn't uh, diluted from proposals that had been extended, um, I believe, last year. So there there is a lot of pressure there. It remains to be seen where exactly it will go because, as we all know, the, this government is coming into its final phase, I think, and it'll be something for the next government or possibly even the government after that, depending how it goes. Um, that's the point that I wanted to come on to, to discuss because we're we're reaching the, uh, the the end of this political term the summer parliamentary recess is uh, is is in the middle distance the doll is supposed to rise uh, tomorrow week for the summer break although i heard some uh, alarming rumours yesterday that it might be extended uh, by, uh, by, by, uh, by another week because there is a body of legislation and work to, to, to get through by the, um, by the summer deadline. But the, do you get the sense around Leinster House of a government kind of almost struggling to make it over the line? Absolutely. I mean, talking to TDs, I've been wandering around the corridors of Leinster House for the last few weeks saying, is there anything? rather than aimlessly. Oh no, say. loitering with great intent and, you know, saying, well, what's going on? What, what should I be writing about? What's happening? And the response is, oh, nothing. Just let's just get there. Let's just get to the recess. Nobody seems to care anymore. Everybody just wants to get to July the 11th. Um, and there is a real sense that, you know, I know we've said this before. We have said this pretty much every year. These are the last days. This will be it now. But it really is. I mean, I think we can all acknowledge that Brexit is the glue that has held this government together. I mean, the amount of controversies that we've had over the last few months in the broadband, Children's Hospital, Barry Cowan came out at one stage and said if it wasn't for Brexit, this government would be gone. And I think that is the truth. And, you know, there was a lot of talk of a September election. Um, You pointed out, Pat, in your own piece that that would be very unlikely because we have to get the budget passed and because in October is a very crunchy time for Brexit. So we probably won't see that in September. But I would imagine a scenario where we get to, you know, whatever Boris, whatever new Vista, appalling Vista Boris is going to bring us into in October, whether it's a deal or a no deal, looking more likely like a no deal. And then whatever happens, maybe an election in November, potentially. Chair, you concur, you think this government is effectively over, almost a zombie government, an undead government? It's been all these things from the beginning. Uh, So I'm not sort of less perturbed by this. And of course, Brexit is the one reason why Vilio Radkar has not called an election. But the second reason is uh, Fianna Fáil have been very determined to keep this government in office. And I don't believe its determination to keep this government in office is diminished one whit. I think there is a plan in Fianna Fáil, which is to keep this government in office through the winter, the better to make them suffer. There's a lot of talk uh, around, you mentioned Jennifer, about September uh, election now. I think there was a chance, and we discussed this in the studio before, that there was a chance had Leo Varadkar had a better local elections mm. yeah. that he could possibly have gone at the uh, at the end of June. I think he senses 
personally that he may have missed an opportunity to go last summer when he was still, uh, certainly his own personal mm. ratings and those of Fine Gael and those of the government were much, much healthier looking than, uh, than they are now. He missed an opportunity then. He thought an opportunity might arise after the locals. It didn't. Sort of a sense, both in Fianna Fáil, I, I discerned, and around government that it might be September. September, to me, is utterly unrealistic. I think by the time we get to September, we be we will be in a full-scale Brexit crisis. And if you couldn't have an election last year or earlier this year because of uh, the uncertainty of Brexit, you certainly won't be able to have one in uh, in in September. So that's why I think that Jerry. Jerry's point that we may go through the winter. We may even get to this time next year. And it is a fact election. that governments whose luck is running out then tend to want to stay in hope that their luck will change. Isn't yes. there something agreed? Yeah. Is, 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 isn't there something about that though as well that governments that lack a sense of purpose and go forward momentum that have things that have to be done by certain dates and so forth. Mm. Those kind of governments that are approaching their last days, that are in drift, they're the ones that bad things happen to. They're more a subject of events Yeah, uh, absolutely agree. But the other aspect is there are a lot of very unpalatable decisions that have to be made soon. Um, And What are they? Well, obviously Brexit, you've got your budget, you know that you're not going to be able to be um, splashing the cash if you're going to be making provisions for a no-deal Brexit potentially. Um, Property tax, you know, that's something that's been put on the long finger multiple times. And we've seen reports from the ESRI saying if you want to stop the economy overheating, you're going to have to balance it with increases in the carbon tax, increases in the property tax, put on the long finger again. That's something that will categorically have to be addressed next year. It can't be put off again. I don't think so anyway. You've got that. Um, I mentioned the Children's Hospital before. You know, I've seen documents over the last few months about meetings that are taking place every month of the board and it's not looking good. Things keep cropping up and, you know, there's been new issues with the design team and I do see that bill getting much, much higher and inflation getting, obviously, much higher than they would have expected previously. So that bill kicks in from actually last month. So you have those issues, you know, you have a lot of... And then obviously in election itself, let's say over the winter period, you have another record set in trolleys and you have the flu season. People are in a bad mood. The weather is awful. Maybe there'd been a no-deal Brexit. Maybe the economy's gone the other way around. All the bills are stacking up. They are really unpopular decisions to have to make and a bad place to have to be for a government. So you'd have to wonder that, yes, Leo Varadkar probably missed the the small, small window after the local elections. Um, And it's hard to see a window for an election really any time before November. Jerry, from what Jennifer says, would suggest that things are just going to get worse for the government in terms of the electoral landscape? Yeah, well, there's two things. First of all, there's the sort of uh, climate change theory, which is that government is always much more difficult and contentious in the winter than in the summer. And then in a winter where the government has run out of steam, its capacity for action is diminished, there's a whole range of issues from health and housing which are only going to get worse uh, before they get better. Uh, the National Broadband Plan, the Children's Hospital. And of course, the Children's Hospital issue, as explained by Jennifer, tallies exactly with the beef farmers issue. Because what hasn't happened in relation to the billion and perhaps a billion plus plus is there's been no list announced 
of the exact timelines of the precise projects that will be long fingered by years as a consequence of the uh, billion plus extra that's going into the children's hospital. Those projects are in specific constituencies. And this is politics as it really operates and, matter, and, and, and matters. So when eventually the HSE tells uh, the good people in that constituency that that project is delayed for years, there's a political consequence. And you add in beef farmers uh, or other issues and you're into the run-in election where for the first time since uh, 2007 we will have a real contest. 2011 wasn't a real contest. 2016 turned out to be much more of a contest than any was expected. But still, uh, Fine Gael had so many spare tyres in, in the boot even as many as they lost to 26, it could still form a government. This is the first election since 2007 where there's a real contest for government and for power. And it comes back to that traditional old thing in Irish politics, a very few landslides notwithstanding, a handful of votes in a handful of constituencies will decide who is in the Taoiseach's office. How do you think that contest stands as of now? I think it's still the Radcliffe's to lose but I think his margins are whittling away by the day. Hence the Fianna Fáil determination to keep him in power at all costs for as long as possible. Thank you both very much. We'll be back in a minute to talk about European top jobs. You're listening to the Irish Times. Jerry is still with us and we're also joined by Barry Andrews, former head of the Institute of European Affairs here in Dublin and sort of MEP, elected to the office of MEP but not yet taking up his position in Brussels, which won't happen, of course, until the British exit, assuming indeed that that does happen. But before we discuss the European top jobs in the summit this week uh, with our two friends, we're going to go to our Berlin correspondent, uh, Derek Scali, who's on the line from High Germany. Derek, the first thing you'll have to clear up for us is how do we pronounce this lady's name? Ursula von der Leyen. It's very easy. Trips off the von der Leyen. Very good. Von der Leyen, yeah. exactly. We'll probably be hearing a lot from her in the, in the next in the next weeks uh, and days to come. She's a, she's a, she's a, a real stalwart of the German political scene. She's been, um, she's served under three roles in uh, Angela Merkel's cabinet table. She's a family minister, labor minister, and for the last six years, a uh, defense minister. So she's considered a political heavyweight, but uh, somebody who perhaps for various reasons we might go into later was perhaps looking for a change. So in terms of uh, a nice little coup for Angela Merkel, she gets uh, a succession, the first uh, German head of the commission since the 1950s. And um, and she also gets rid of a minister who was starting to get into problems uh, domestically. So a win-win situation for Germany. Well, you've anticipated my next question because certainly the name wasn't, uh, certainly not tripping off anybody's tongue in uh, in Brussels. The name kind of came out of the blue late on in, in the process. But from what you say, this is seen as not as a, a last minute stitch up, but actually a bit of a coup for Angela Merkel. Is that true? Indeed. I mean, 24 hours ago, everyone was saying she came back from Osaka. She was a leader out of touch. She had come forward with sort of a G20 compromise that other leaders in Europe who weren't at the G20 didn't like. And, you know, Angela Merkel is, you know, losing her touch and she's she's been in power too long. And what we see 24 hours later is, now obviously, Ms. von der Leyen needs to be confirmed by the European Parliament, so she hasn't got the job yet. But she has managed to get a senior job for Germany. Germany's always in the past. Uh, chancellors have been accused of punching below their weight 
state not wanting to impose German candidates on the European institutions, but um, the European Commission president is one of the big, if not the most important job in Brussels. So um, she's gotten an Irish, she's gotten a, a German in there, and she's gotten a woman in there, and uh, she ticks all sorts of boxes. She's trilingual. She was born in Brussels, and uh, she comes from a, a German political dynasty, uh, and so she has, um, as they say in German, Stahlgeruch. So she has that whiff of the stable about her because she's she's been uh, in the in the game for such a long time. And is she seen domestically as you know a heavyweight, somebody with the clout to uh, to perform the role? Because I, I I guess she's something of an unknown to everybody else. Indeed, I'd say she's sort of a medium to heavyweight. She um, she uh, has had a very difficult job in recent years trying to reform the German military, which has been underinvested and uh, really has a terrible problems, structural problems. People would, you know, the, the jury's out on whether she succeeded on that. Uh, but uh, dealing with the German military is like uh, herding uh, herding cats. So uh, trying to get get her head around the European. Uh, European Commission would probably be even a, uh, a more complicated task after that. But uh, she's definitely a process woman. She uh, she is very she's very smart about building her uh, political profile. She hasn't really had a sort of a, a European administrative uh, job so far. She's always been on the executive side. So it remains to be seen how much she'll be a face for the European Commission and how much he'll actually be getting in as an operator. I mean, John Kolt Juncker was the ultimate political operator from his time in Luxembourg. So she may be more sort of a, a presentation person. Uh, it remains to be seen. But, I mean, she's considered she's 60 years old. She'd already decided, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm too close to Angela Merkel. Angela Merkel is 64, so I'm too close to her to have any hopes of uh, inheriting any positions from her. So she'd already said that, you know, this, this her, her defence ministry role in Berlin was probably going to be the highest she would go here so but she's probably got a few good years before retirement so switching to Brussels um, probably will suit her down to the ground And is the defence minister's job in Berlin is it a real cabinet heavyweight position uh... It's a let's put it this way it's um, it's considered a, a political challenge um, it's a bit like um, the health portfolio it's something you wouldn't necessarily give to your best friend but it's something you would definitely give to somebody if you want to see um, what's, what's, um, what they're made of. And while she hasn't completely sunk, um, she has been facing huge challenges because the German military, I mean, Germany, just from a, from a post-war perspective, what is the German military there to do for the last 20, 25 years? It's been trying to redefine you know, how active and proactive an army does it be? Where does it get involved in military conflict around the world? And of course, we've got Donald Trump, who's been uh, saber-rattling since he came in, saying that Germany isn't pulling its weight in NATO in terms of defence spending. So she's had, to, she's had to weather quite a lot of, um, of coming from Washington. Uh, she's also been quite involved in the, you know, the Europeanisation of the European uh, of, uh, Armed Forces in Europe. And she's been well in there. So she's on top of her game there. From a practical perspective, I mean, the German military has been a bit of a mess. It's been a bit of a mess for several years. And she, she's the third, or if not fourth, minister who's really been trying to reform this. But a bit like the Irish health system, it doesn't it seems to be impervious to change uh, the huge problems with um, military equipment, with uh, aircraft. There's been several scandals. And she's also been sort of criticised for criticising motivation within the German army and rather than sort of uh, motivating 
dominating them. So it's she's not a, she's not she hasn't been a huge success as defence minister, but she hasn't failed either, which is more to be said for some of her male predecessors. You might say that the Irish health system has maybe inflicted more casualties in recent years than the German uh, than the German army, which she seems to be an enthusiasm for uh, for much closer defence cooperation. Uh, between European countries, between EU countries, I wonder: is that something that is that that is likely to cause difficulties here? Is it likely to come up? I wonder in her uh, confirmation hearings before the European Parliament. Well, I mean, on on defence, everyone, uh, let's say in mainland Europe, particularly NATO members, have said there is absolutely no point in. Um, in each army, you know, sort of mowing its own lawn and not working with the neighbours in the next garden. So, I mean, European defence cooperation is on the agenda. It is a reality. Ireland has a very different tradition. Ireland isn't a member of NATO, so and Ireland cannot be forced into any it doesn't want to be involved in. So, I'm sure it will come up. But I'm sure she she's quite a she's quite a, a rhetorical. Uh, talent. I'm sure she will find a way of saying something that everyone can live with on that. But yeah, it's it definitely, I mean, it's timely to have someone with her background because that is going to be one of the major issues in the years to come, uh, which is pooling European defence forces. And um, so from that perspective, she's um, she could be a right woman in the right job. And um, she's she's also seems to have won the um, two two important groups. I mean, the Francophonie are delighted that she speaks French. Macron seems to be delighted by this, and also uh, the Central European countries, the so-called Visegrad group. Uh, so that's Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Hungary, who were very uh, deeply opposed to some of the other names in the ring. And uh, they have said they would be quite happy with her too. So she hasn't burned her bridges to the left or to the right, to the east or to the west. So she's sort of got the centre of the continent, if if we can believe what we're hearing at least. She's got them behind her. So that's certainly a good way to be going into um, into any any, any hearings in the European Parliament. Okay, Derek, we will let you go in, in, in one minute. But I want to ask you just one final question about domestic German politics, which is, I mean, you say that this is seen as something of a coup for Angela Merkel. And yet, from what I can gather reading the Paddy Smith's reports this morning, that the German government hasn't actually voted for this at the, or Angela Merkel didn't vote for this. She has abstained because the Social Democrats have uh, have objected to it. Does it have implications for her coalition? Not really. I mean, the Social Democrats had their man, Franz Timmermans, and uh, he was unacceptable to Poland, Hungary and other countries. So and they are the Social Democrats are annoyed that no Mrs. von der Leyen was not up for election as a so-called Spitzenkandidat, as a lead candidate. So they're annoyed. On the other hand, Frau Merkel also has a um, Bavarian allies, the Christian Social Union from Bavaria, and uh, Manfred Weber was their man. So they're annoyed that he has been um, uh, he he might get the second half of this European term as head of the European Parliament. So they're annoyed. So she got two annoyed coalition partners. But I was asking them yesterday, is this enough to cause a coalition crisis and they each said no so um, while it is not it's not it's, it, I, I, I don't think that the major problem will be coming from Berlin I think uh, convincing people in the European Parliament will be far more of a challenge for Mrs. von der Leyen than trying to keep keep people calm at home no it's um, it's it's a prominent position Germany has it I mean they obviously won't be going for the um, head of the European Central Bank as a result because Ms. Lagarde has got that but uh, Germans are always uh, delighted if somebody like any country if one of their own gets a prominent job but I think for, from Germany's European neighbours Mrs von der Leyen ticks all the boxes of being sort of a European figure who won't just be won't just be singing from a German hymn sheet 
Jerry, we know you're busy covering the visit of Michael D. Higgins uh, to Germany, so we let you go. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. Thank you. Barry, let me turn to you first. What do you make of this slate of appointments and the manner of which they have come about? Well, I think the Spitzen candidate idea is not dead, actually. I think the slate that has emerged is a little, is a lot more... It's con- not moving. It's, well, I, I think it is... Um, it hasn't I, said anything I, in I, a while. I think what it is is the creature of a very fragmented outcome of the European elections. So if there had been a much more dominant EPP or Social Democrats or any other party, I think uh, the Spitzen candidate process would have been irresistible for the council. But in circumstances where both of the two major parties were weakened and the two emerging parties, Greens and the uh, Renew Europe and the populists emerged and gained numbers, I felt the process uh, was uh, in cold storage, if I can use a phrase that it's bandied about quite a lot. So, um, however, I don't agree with the Spitzenkandidat system. I don't think it's uh, it's reflective of the... uh, The entire basis for it, though, that when, you know, the, the... the horny-handed sons of the soil of West Kerry traipse down from the mountainside to go uh, and vote for Sean Kelly, that actually part of the what is animating them is enthusiasm for uh, the presidency of Manfred Weber. Well, exactly. Look, I, that's, that's one of the reasons why I don't think it's, uh, it's, a, it's the correct process. I think that it has to be reinvented. I think it's still there uh, because it, it was given some life in 2014. But the treaties are pretty clear on it from a legal point of view. The council only has to have regard for the outcome of the European election, not bound by them in the nomination that it makes. I think, secondly, your point that nobody voted for me uh, on the basis of the slate that the Aldi group were, were proposing. Nobody voted for Francis Fitzgerald based on Weber. Um, and the debates that took place in the hustings, if you might say, before the European Parliament elections were viewed by precisely nobody. And all of the social media activity around them, I think 80% of it was by staffers. <laughs> so it it gained no interest whatsoever. We, we, when I was in the Institute, we proposed hosting a debate uh, but there was no interest from the media to cover that debate in in Ireland, never mind Europe. So it hasn't gained any, it doesn't add to the legitimacy of the European Parliament. It doesn't add to the general pool of democracy, the democratic deficit issue of the European Parliament. I think it has to be reinvented. I think there has to be some way to make sure that this is a much greater cross-European transnational election than simply 28 or maybe the next time 27 but the separate problem, national you elections. You don't have a transnational demos. Well, you, you, you do and you don't. I mean, I think there has been a major increase in knowledge of the European project over the last five years. And the fact that there was a, a, a very significant increase for the first time in 25 years of turnout tends to suggest that people are taking and understand the European project a little better. Now, that doesn't mean to say their enthusiasm for European integration has increased. I think their enthusiasm for European membership has increased and there is much more ownership, much less disenfranchisement uh, than had been the pattern over many years, over two decades. And I think also the fact that the EPP, S&D, um, monopoly has been broken, has also uh, freed up uh, enthusiasm for the project as well in terms of parliamentary elections. So I think the demos is, isn't there in the way that we understand it. But I think that's a very nationalistic point of view. And I think that uh, it's a unique uh, idea for a multilateral government. And I think, therefore, trying to apply 2,000-year-old theories of democracy uh, perhaps is old hat, in my opinion. The, uh, the the European Parliament may be fractured, but the evidence of the last couple of days trying to put together 
this deal suggests that the council, which is really the decisive decision-making forum of the European Union, is more fractured than it has ever been as well. We saw this, you know, the, the, the Osaka compromise hammered together between the French and the Germans and the Dutch and the Spanish at the G20 in, uh, in, in Japan over the weekend didn't fly at the European Council. It looked to me like a, an astonishing rebuff of Angela Merkel by her own EPP group on uh, on Sunday. And then ending up with this, you know, with the, the nomination of von der Leyen yesterday, someone who had, nobody had really heard of as a contender for this job. It was all a bit of a mess, wasn't it? Yeah, well, look, I remember asking uh, Michael Noonan after the 2016 election, you know, this is very fragile. It's very fragmented. The doll is in a mess. And he said, you know, the government is weak enough to last a long time. And that was 2016, 2017. And it has proven, it has lasted the test of time. And it, when the Fianna Fáil government that I was in, uh, we had a very bare majority in, after 2007, but it lasted through incredibly difficult times. And sometimes a large majority, like the previous Labour Fine Gael government, a huge majority, was very fragile. And there was people, they were they were losing members all the time, particularly on the Labour side. They weren't losing so, votes, though. But they, they were losing people out of the, uh, the, the Parliamentary Labour Party in vast numbers uh, over the course, much more so than the previous governments that you've endured an awful, a much harder time. So I think, yes, the European Council is fragmented. Does that mean that the decisions are going to be weaker? Not necessarily. I think they're going to be harder fought. I think the complacency of the duopoly of EPP and S&D is over. That's good. I think the Franco-German hegemony will continue because of Brexit in particular. Um, uh, But what's interesting, and the last part of your question is, is around Osaka, and the uh, neutering of Merkel's plan by the EPP. That's an EPP where Orban continues to play a role. So despite what Leo Varadkar said before this European Parliament election, the EPP is still very much aligned with Orban. And all of that implies in terms of his attacks on democracy, in terms of attacks on trade unions, on media, and all of those rule of law questions. So when it comes down to it, when it comes down to power politics, Orban was useful. And the suspension is, a, is, is fake. It's not real. Clearly, he exercises great influence in the EPP through the council. Jerry, how do you think the Taoiseach has played all this? I think he played reasonably well. And I mean, what this boils down to is that states of interest, not friends, and the EPP is, is a construct, uh, as every party is, of, of convenience. And it wasn't convenient uh, for key states uh, to support the nominal EPP candidates and hence Mrs. Merkel came back from Osaka and it didn't work. But I suppose in terms of the Taoiseach, the bottom line is that she was given another chance uh, by her colleagues who supported her and, you you know, you can say she won handsomely in the end. So I can't see how there would be any damage down there. But to come back to council, she is diminished in the sense that she's this is now year 14. Uh, that her electoral situation within Germany is is clearly diminished. She said she will not be a, a chancellor again, so she's in her final term. So every politician in those circumstances, the energy and the power is ebbing away. But she is still chancellor of Germany. Uh, and Germany is the big beast in, in the room. And so long as she is there, however, uh, past her heyday she may be, she's still more important than anyone else. End of story. But not as important as she was Correct. and doesn't Correct. have the sort of deal-making clout, as we have seen, that she once might have had. 
I'm not, don't buy into the fact that this was all chaos. Uh, I'm struck by the fact that so many countries can agree so promptly, only a couple of weeks as it turned out, uh, to construe, uh, you know, all of these appointments to align east, west, north, south, socialist, um, uh, and and a Christian Democrat and all the rest. It seemed to me that these these meetings and the fact that they went through a first list of candidates and a second list of candidates and they ended up with with a, with a third slate uh, fairly efficiently within weeks. I'm impressed by that, and I think the the coverage of the capers in between, while fair enough because it was all actually happening, to construe this as a crisis in the system, as distinct from the system actually working. I see the positive in this. And in relation to Barry's point about Orban, the bottom line with politics is every politician will take whatever votes they need from wherever they come every time. And any party will do the same in Dáil Éireann. His party certainly will after the next election. And it may be unsavoury, but it is a simple fact of politics. Well, sorry, just to make it clear, you know, before the election, the Taoiseach was very clear that the suspension of Orban from the EPP was a first step and that it was inevitable that he would be defanged as far as EPP membership is concerned. What's happened right now is that Orban and Poland and the Visegrad Four have just, you know, torpedoed Merkel's plan and, and have the fact that shaped that. the complexion of the commission for the next five years through the good offices of the EPP. So that really has to be challenged. That is a thread that has to be picked. Yes, it is about backroom politics, which is the only way you can shape a slate like this. And I accept that. Yeah. That's absolutely true. It's like any reshuffle. They talked about, oh, well, let's put the policy first and then let's find the people to implement it. That's just nonsense. That was just buying time. And I agree with Jerry that it was actually quite efficient compared to the formation of government in Ireland, for example, the formation of or government Belgium, in Belgium, yes. or even the previous uh, commission, which took an awful lot longer. They were under very severe time constraint. They wanted to do it before the parliament met and elected its presidency. So it was done quite well. But I think that influence of Orban is something that's really going to be have to picked at because this is about rule of law. Everyone was trumpeting this before the European election. This is what the key issues are for the next decade for Europe. And yet it was Orban who was the kingmaker in the end. Well, this is a fundamental problem because if you have a coalition of two or three states, possibly four, but certainly two or three that are, in one case, is beyond, uh, you know, the tipping point, uh, and another one or two who are edging towards the tipping point, does the EU have a capacity and cohesion to deal with this effectively? And, you know, given the, the nature of the institutions and how many things have to be aligned to achieve an action, uh, it, it is questionable. And, but I think it will be a key issue over the next five years. Barry, last question. What do you think, if any, the implications are for Brexit of these appointments? I think almost no difference. I think van der Leyen is sort of out of central casting in terms of uh, German politics. I think the sympathy that uh, Merkel has shown, the solidarity towards the Irish position, um, will be continued through the commission. And I think Juncker, you know, always looked to Berlin before making any major moves around Brexit. And I think uh, clearly she will do the same. Um, in terms of the other appointments, uh, I think Charles Michel uh, from Belgium, again, a country that's very impacted by Brexit, that understands the Irish position. He has an affinity, I think, with Leo Varadkar and other younger uh, heads of state in um, in the European Council. So broadly, I don't think it, it changes anything. Um, I think the fact that Sabine Weyand has gone into trade as a senior official, 
you know, that's going to be positive for Ireland. I think we, we were, we're also going to have to see what happens with the other commissionerships. So, broadly speaking, Hogan I don't think... Do you think is going it, to be uh, reappointed and will he get trade, which is the I, one I, I that think, I think, apparently I think is. yes and yes. And um, I, I think trade is going to be tricky. We can see already Mercosur is, uh, you know, beginning to dominate that aspect of, uh, of things. And I think an Irish voice in trade will be, be extremely positive. So failing uh, a member of my own political family being uh, nominated as a commissioner, uh, I would support Phil Hogan to be reappointed. I think he's done really well on trade, particularly in, in Japan on the EU-Japan trade deal a couple of years ago um, from his agriculture ministry. And I think he would represent Irish agricultural interests quite well in terms of the uh, trade commissionership. So uh, I would broadly support that. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Great pleasure. And that's all for this week. Thanks to Jennifer, Gerard, Barry and Derek on the line for joining us. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon with JJ Vernon on sound. We'll talk to you next week. 